Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls. Our name is very fucking confused. What's yours? Each episode, we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Brandon. And I'm Justin. Okay, let's get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick, and I chose Shocker and Fallen. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. Shocker is a 1989 slasher film written and directed by Wes Craven. While college football star Jonathan Parker is sleeping with his girlfriend Allison, he's haunted by nightmares of a serial killer. In his dreams, a television repairman with a limp named Horace Pinker kills Jonathan's foster family, his mother, brother, and sister, before turning to attack him. He wakes in a cold sweat and tries to convince himself it's just a dream, but his worst fears are realized when he returns home to find his family has indeed been murdered. He tells his dad, Lieutenant Don Parker, the lead detective on the case, that he thinks he knows who the murderer is, but insists that he be brought along to capture him. His father reluctantly agrees. The police raid results in several officers' deaths, and Pinker escapes and targets Jonathan's girlfriend, Allison, in retribution. Another of Jonathan's dreams leads the police to Pinker, whom they catch in the act of a kidnapping. The day of his execution, the guards find Pinker on the floor of his cell, holding jumper cables connected to a TV and performing some sort of demonic ritual. They drag him out of his cell and place him in the chair, but with his last words, he reveals that Jonathan is, in fact, his son, and that as a boy, Jonathan shot him in the knee while trying to stop the murder of his mother. The execution goes wrong, Pinker survives, becoming an electrical being and escaping by possessing hospital staff and police officers, hopping from host body to host body. He continues his murderous ways, possessing cops, a jogger, and even a little girl, all while trying to hunt down and kill Jonathan. Allison appears to Jonathan in a dream, offering her heart-shaped necklace to him as a talisman against Pinker's evil. A fight across town between Jonathan and Pinker results in Pinker dangling in front of his satellite dish, turning into electricity, and beaming himself out across town. Jonathan, with the aid of Allison's spirit and his teammates, devises a plan to bring Pinker back into the real world. Pinker follows Jonathan into the television, and they proceed to brawl across multiple television programs and news broadcasts. Jonathan eventually traps him inside a television when his teammates kill the power for the whole town. The film ends with Allison's voice telling Jonathan to take care of himself and commenting the stars are beautiful. Jonathan looks up at the sky and agrees before turning and joining his neighbors as they gather in the wake of the blackout. Fallen is a 1998 supernatural thriller written by Nicholas Kazan and directed by Gregory Hoblet. Philadelphia police detective John Hobbs visits serial killer Edgar Reese on death row. Reese is in oddly high spirits, and during their conversation, he grabs Hobbs' hand and growls at him in what Hobbs assumes is gibberish. As he's executed in the gas chamber, Reese mockingly sings Time is on my side by the Rolling Stones. Later, Hobbs and his partner Jonesy begin investigating a new string of murders copying Reese's M.O. Hobbs learns of a former detective who killed himself in a remote cabin in the woods after being blamed for a series of murders, similar to Reese's. Hobbs checks out the abandoned cabin and finds several books about demonic possession, 
and the name Azazel scrawled on the wall. It's revealed that Reese was actually a fallen angel named Azazel with the power to possess human beings by touch. Since he failed to possess Hobbs before his execution, he wants to destroy Hobbs' life as revenge. He toys with Hobbs at the police station, hopping from officer to officer, then pedestrian to pedestrian, all while singing, Time is on my side. Hobbs soon becomes the prime suspect of the copycat killings, and when his brother is killed, he's forced to take his nephew and flee. Hobbs learns Azazel can only travel in spirit form for a limited amount of time without a host, or he'll die. So Hobbs returns to the late detective's abandoned cabin. Jonesy and his lieutenant track Hobbs to the cabin, but Jonesy reveals he's possessed by Azazel and kills the lieutenant. He and Hobbs wrestle for the gun, resulting in Jonesy being shot. Hobbs smokes a cigarette laced with poison as Jonesy dies, meaning once Hobbs dies, Azazel will be stranded and soon die himself. Hobbs taunts him, singing, Time is on my side. Azazel takes possession of Hobbs' body and attempts to flee, but the poison quickly kills Hobbs and ejects Azazel from the body. The film ends with Azazel possessing a cat, hiding under the cabin, and heading back to civilization to continue his terrible work. Okay, so why did you pick these two movies? When I picked these two movies, I did not expect them to pair together as well as they did. All I knew about Shocker was the ending. I knew that Shocker was about a serial killer who was placed on death row, and after his execution, he came back, and it had something to do with him hopping between television channels. And that's all I knew about it. I did not know <laughs> that he possessed people. So when I paired it with Fallen, I thought, oh, a movie about two serial killers, both of whom are executed and come back, and then <laughs> pos- like hop through different mediums. I did not realize <laughs> that it was literally about two serial killers who can hop from person to person and possess them all while taunting (laughs) the main character so this actually paired way better than i expected it to and i had expected them to pair pretty well together so Mm -hmm. shows i'd never seen shocker before shows what i know yeah i thought that was actually really funny because i thought you knew that like i didn't know to that extent but i knew you know, some of Shocker and I had seen Fallen a long time ago. So when you yeah suggested the pairing, I was like, oh, OK, it's cool. It'll be like one of those really obvious pairings that we do, you know, because we got to sprinkle one of those in every now and then, you know. <laughs> and then when you were like, oh, you paired really well together. I was like, well, yeah, like <laughs> you you picked him like so. Yeah. For, for some reason, I don't know why when I was watching them, I was like, yeah, makes sense. But it just didn't occur to me that you didn't know that about Shocker. I wanted to talk a little bit about how these, uh, you know, just compare and contrast these two movies, because like I said, I didn't I didn't expect them to pair so well together. It's fascinating how similar they are in concept and how different they are in execution. They are wildly different movies with very different tones. Shocker is goofy as balls. It is a mm-hmm. silly movie that's almost kind of trying to be kind of a new Nightmare on Elm Street in, in a lot of ways. And yeah. then Fallen feels so much like Seven that it almost felt like a parody of Seven to me. Well, I know you might find this shocking, but of the two movies... I personally enjoyed Fallen more than I enjoyed Shocker. I don't really know what it was. I I can't I can't really explain it other than the fact that it's it was just a matter of I don't know. I guess at the end of the day it was just a matter of in which one did I care about the characters more? And it was definitely in Fallen because everything in Shocker was presented in I don't know. It was like already right off the bat the cheese level was like 10. And it almost left it nowhere to go because the guy literally limps into frame with the beat 
of an 89 rocker song <laughs> called Shocker by some dumb fucking band. I don't know. They're, like I said, I feel like other Wes Craven movies have also started out like cheese level 10, you know, expert level, whatever. Yeah. And... For some reason, this one just didn't do it for me. I don't know why. I was watching it and I was like, why, why, why do I care? Why do I care? And then, you know, he like does the jumper cable thing. And I was like, so wait, how did he, how did he get into the TV? He talked to the devil and then they start fighting across the different okay. channels. And I was like, hold on. Oh my. Yeah. And it just, so it, it's not a very long movie either. It's only like 90 minutes. Oh no, so. it's not. It's long. It's longer than you think. Yeah. Oh, this is 110 minutes. 110 minutes. 10 minutes short of two hours. It's almost two hours long. That's crazy. But really quick, I want to talk about Shocker because there were some things in this movie that, one, Shocker is shockingly similar to A Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't just mean that Jonathan deals with dreams and, like, interacts with Pinker in his dreams. I mean, when they introduce Pinker, they introduce him in his shop. They never show his face, and they show close-ups of him working with his shop tools. It's the exact same way that they introduced Freddy Krueger in the first movie, because when they introduce him in Nightmare on Elm Street, he's, like, building his glove. And in this one, yeah. he was piece by piece, like, building this television. He was... Or or something. I don't entirely know what he was doing, yeah. but it was... It was Electronic thingy. I don't know. It was weird, though, because it was so... <laughs> yeah. Pace-wise, pacing-wise, it was so similar. And then it starts with, like, a, a, a kill like a sort of an opening kill and then pivots into introducing the main character. I am fascinated by the difference between the way a male main character is handled and a female main character or a man and a woman, I, I guess I should say, because Nancy, she wasn't treated poorly. She's a great main character, one of the best, but there's something about the sort of like, I don't know how to describe it. The sort of swaggering dude-ness of Jonathan when he's first introduced that was like so tonally different than Nancy that I was fascinated because Mark from Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is introduced more the way women are introduced. He he he's he plays the role of the final girl. Jonathan does not play the role of the final girl. He stalks Pinker throughout the entire movie. Nancy is hunted and then turns the tables, but Jonathan is the hunter the whole movie, you know? Hobbs is the same way. Like he he's hunting Reese throughout the movie. In fact, he's actually a little less proactive than Jonathan even is, because he after Reese dies, he thinks that he's good. And Jonathan somehow manages to figure out, hmm, I wonder if he's possessing people. Because he was so concerned about the doctor, but not in like a I hope she's okay. He was clearly like, I bet that lady's actually Pinker. That's obviously oh, where yeah. your mind goes, is is when he was shocked, clearly, he became an electrical being and now has the ability to possess people, obviously. Mm -hmm. With all the other stuff that had happened in that movie, I was like, you know what? Okay, I'd go with it. In Fallen, of course, it's going to take him a little bit longer, you know, to like actually understand this is not a normal killing. And then he actually finds out he's not actually hunting Reese. He's hunting Azazel. I guess that's, that could be part of it is that in uh, Shocker, he, the bad guy, uh, Pinker, shocks himself into TV or whatever. And then he goes after, you know, the kid. That's like his whole thing. Mm -hmm. 
But in Fallen, like Azazel does the same thing, kind of, you know, like he hops to another person and that person commits a murder and then they set up the scene the same way, you know, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But it's it's just more, I don't know, it's just more intellectual. It's more mind gamey. Like it's it, you can very clearly see that Azazel is like playing games with the detective because he's found somebody that he like kind of enjoys playing games with like even to the end he's loving it because Hobbs is finally like ha ha I killed you and all it took was for me to kill everybody that I work with and myself <laughs> and the guy was like oh you did almost get me but I'm gonna go into this cat sorry you know like I don't know in Fallen it was just a lot more it was like a fun cat and mouse kind of thing uh-huh. and in Shocker I felt like the whole time I should be like wearing a sleeveless shirt and be like getting my crunches in for a pussy safari like that's how I felt the whole movie should be because it was like there's hardly any females and there's like <laughs> this constant rock soundtrack from the 80s and 90s which I can't fault yeah, because obviously no that's amazing that I can think of or very there's little some, score but we can talk about that later no I yeah. just meant like Nightmare on Elm Street is made by its score. You don't yeah. get the sort of goofy 80s rock music until you get Nightmare on Elm Street like 4. Even Nightmare on Elm Street 3, even though it has that Dawkins song that's famous, it still mm-hmm. uses the Charles Bernstein score. Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the first thing you hear is not the Charles Bernstein bing, Instead, it's a Tuesday night song because she plays Kristen, the sort of main character until Alice takes over. And it's just Mm -hmm. from what I've read and I don't I don't quite get it. I really wanted to to listen to the to the commentary Um, from what I've read. Wes Craven wrote Shocker sort of as a response to the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. But I don't Mm -hmm. I don't get I don't get what he was trying to say. Because he wouldn't he like you don't set out to make a bad movie. And I, I would I would quickly aside that I don't think Shocker is a bad movie. I think it's a weird movie. And I think that it's tries to do several things, not necessarily successfully. I don't know that it fully threads three different needles, but it's an entertaining movie. And I think that it does some really interesting things. It's also so similar to Nightmare on Elm Street in like a lot of the details that you can't help but draw comparisons and it pales Mm -hmm. in comparison. And so it makes me wonder, like, clearly Pinker's meant to be kind of a Freddy Krueger type character from his, like, quippy one-liners to the fact that Jonathan interacts with him in dreams to the fact that once Pinker becomes electrical, he sort of stalks people through television, very similar to the way Freddy stalks people in their dreams, even to the point where, like, when he got shocked when he was in the electric chair, like, his head got burnt. And so Mm -hmm. he doesn't have quite the all-over body burns that freddie had but he does have that sort of burned look to him but like what is he trying to say is he trying to say that the nightmare on Elm street movies are dumb is he trying to say that he could do them better what distinction was he trying to make with this movie that's different than nightmare on Elm street unless he was literally just like mad that new line cinema went on to make a bunch of nightmare on Elm street movies basically without him and then he was like i could have done that let me show you one more thing I want to mention about about Shocker that's that was like just one more like weird thing. And I don't mean weird like whenever Pinker possesses like the little girl and then she like calls him a, a bitch or a fucker or something and then like drives <laughs> the tractor after them because that's like obvious jokes. I'm talking right. about Pinker's in his cell 
holding jumper cables connected to a television. He has his candles arranged and like a demonic thing. All very strange, but like the strange that you expect so far. Mm-hmm. It's he does the sort of Chucky, give me the power, I beg of you. And then electricity forms in the air, forms lips, and a mouth says, and this is the part that's weird. You got it, baby. What? (laughs) It's like, okay, so it's kind of like he was like communing with the devil and the devil came to him in the form of marshmallow from Bob's Burgers. Like that's (laughs) immediately what it sounded like to me was marshmallow from Bob's Burgers. Like, you got it, baby. And I was like, what? What the? One of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, when I watched these two movies, it was immediately obvious the topic I wanted to look at was capital punishment, the death penalty, because both of them are about serial killers who are sentenced to death. The fascinating thing about the way, honestly, both of these movies, but especially Shocker, approaches the death penalty is like super pro-death penalty. When Pinker is put to death, he is not remorseful. He is just a cackling madman. He literally... He's like a caricature of an inmate, basically. Yeah, he's just like a caricature. He's like sitting there like, and I'd do it again too, see? He he uses his final words to badmouth the kid that he knows is his son and talk about how like, yeah, I got you good. You're trying to stop me from killing your mother, dummy, but I got you. And like, it's silly. And what's really interesting is that they go the extra mile of having a doctor there who specifically is very anti-death penalty. And she's disgusted with the way that they're treating him because they're treating him like some kind of animal. And then she's proven wrong. Like the movie effectively is like, nah, she's dumb because he's he possesses her first. She's the first person to be possessed because she goes in there to check on him after the execution seems to fail. And the movie's like, the movie is so pro-death penalty. Like, obviously Pinker deserves to die. Obviously the state should kill him because he is such an unremorseful monster. But there are, like, almost no criminals that are like that. Like, I, I was doing research into the death penalty, and one of the things that I read was that most prisoners, most inmates, when they go to to be executed, they're just solemn and sad and quiet. Mm-hmm. They sort of have spent all this time worrying and they've just kind of accepted their fate. There have been a few who had like gallows humor who have like been a bit jokey. Like I forget Mm -hmm. what his name was, but there was one person who was sentenced to death who was executed in the gas chamber, I think. And before he died, he said, that phone must be broken. The governor hasn't called yet, which is like, that's not like, and I'd do it again, too. See? It's just right. sort of like someone who's like, well, nothing I can do. And there was another guy whose name was French, like John French or something. His last words were you know, sort of like, I think his last actual words were, you came here to kill me. You didn't come here to hear speech to make for me to make a speech or something like that. But his last words to reporters, like the day before, was a suggestion for the headline, which was French fries. And <laughs> it's just... <laughs> wild to me that like that's such obvious coping with your own imminent demise versus mm-hmm. the cackling mustache twirling bad guy that that 
Pinker is portrayed as. And the doctor is played as this dummy, basically, like this big fool for thinking that he deserved to be treated like a human because he is an animal. It's not quite that heavy handed in Fallen, but there is basically like an implied like he is technically possessed by a demon, but he's like this monster who's singing time is on my side and he's like acting like a rock star getting off on all of this attention and it's it's just fascinating because it, it's his glibness in the face of his own mortality is meant to disgust us to disgust us as viewers because he's not remorseful he's not sad like he's being punished he's being killed for his crimes and yet he's not remorseful enough it's sort of like if you've ever watched an adult like yelling at a teenager or a kid you know, like the the kid either starts laughing or smiling or like isn't effectively subservient enough to the adult's authority. And they're like, what are you laughing at? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how Fallen seems to play it. It's like, well, he deserves to die because he's not sad. And if he were <laughs> a real person, he'd be sad. But most of the criminals, the most of the inmates who go to their execution, either apologize or are just generally solemn and quiet until it's over. So I did some research into just general facts about the death penalty. As of 2019, 106 countries have completely abolished the death penalty in law for all crimes. And it's a wide variety of countries. It's it's Germany, Italy, Finland, Sweden, the UK. It's also Serbia, Colombia, Rwanda, Turkey, Cambodia all have outlawed the death penalty completely. And there's a total of 142 countries who have either abolished the death penalty outright in law or in practice, meaning that even though they have the death penalty, they haven't used it in like the past 10 years. There were 657 people who were executed in 2019, excluding China, but that 657 people executed is down 5% from 2018. In the U.S., the number of executions has been below 30 for the past four years. So we've only executed 30 people each of the past four years. As of 2020, 22 states and the District of Columbia, D.C., have abolished the death penalty. Three have governor-imposed moratoria against it. As of April this year, there were 2,603 prisoners on death row. And here's where the statistics get just... Christ. 42% of death row inmates are white. 41% of death row inmates are black. Here's the thing, though. Black folks only make up 13% of the U.S. population, yet somehow they make up 41% of inmates on death row. You know, just an example of how the criminal justice system continually affects black folks worse than it affects white folks. In a 2009 study... 88% of criminologists that were surveyed said they did not believe the death penalty was a significant deterrent, which was actually up from 84% when this last was done in 1986. In another 2009 study, Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau and Bronx DA Robert Johnson were both adamantly opposed to the death penalty, and they wrote about it in 1995 for the New York Times. One of the arguments for the death penalty is that as long as the death penalty is a possible consequence to your actions, that's a deterrent for people not to do crimes. This study was examining that by looking at Manhattan and the Bronx. 
because both of those had district attorneys that were vocally anti-death penalty. And in spite of that, between 1995 and 2004, the murder rate in Manhattan and the Bronx both dropped by 64%. In Brooklyn, as a converse point, Brooklyn's top prosecutor had the largest pursuit of the death penalty, and their murder rates only dropped by 43%. Despite executions continuing to drop both in popularity and in practice, murder rates have been steadily declining since 1991, and murder rates in states without the death penalty have been consistently lower than states with the death penalty. This is conjecture on my part, but when you compare the states that have the death penalty and the states that don't have the death penalty, it falls roughly where you would expect. The states that don't have the death penalty tend to be more progressive and liberal, which also means they tend to have more robust social programs which meet the needs that stop crime before it happens. And in states that have the death penalty, they tend to be more conservative, they tend to have more restricted social programs, which also tend to have a higher rate in poverty and a higher rate in crime. On the subject of crime, I also did research into serial killers. So this thought actually sparked because I was listening to an episode of the Faculty of Horror, and I think it was Andrea Subasati who just mentioned offhandedly how serial killers were being replaced with mass shooters. And as I was watching this movie and I was thinking about how you don't hear as much about serial killers, even the most recent example that's super famous is the Golden State Killer, and his crimes are all from back when serial killers yeah. were a thing back in their heyday. It's not like 70s he was, and 80s. Yeah, yeah, it's not like he was. he's actively doing it. I think the most recent one was a serial killer who was targeting gay men in Canada, which is bad. And it's not that there are no serial killers. They're just way less frequent. So I did some research. And until 1974, mass murder referred to both mass killings and serial killings. They didn't differentiate between the two. Since then, they, they kind of split those two things off a little bit, but the details are a bit murkier. For serial killers, there's not necessarily like one firm definition, but they have more of an idea of what they consider a serial killer or a serial murder. The FBI calls serial murders the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. There used to be it used to be that there were it was three or more victims and that also involved like a cooling off period between the killings, but they felt that that excluded too many examples that were similar, and so they broadened that definition a little bit more. Meanwhile, the FBI has no definition for what is constituted as a mass shooting, but the Congressional Research Service defines the, a mass shooting as multiple firearm homicide incidents involving four or more victims at one or more locations close to one another. It does, it specifically, they have to die. If the people don't die, they don't consider it a mass shooting, which to me is crazy. It also ignores the motive for shooting people. The trouble with looking at mass shootings is because when we as the public refer to mass shootings, we're referring to like the guy who shot up Pulse, the guy who shot up the movie theater after The Dark Knight Rises came out. We're, we're talking about a lone gunman who is angry and vengeful and is taking out his anger on as many people as possible with malice. It's your school shooters, the Columbine, stuff like that. But this, most of the statistics for mass shootings don't differentiate between that and, say, multiple deaths in an armed robbery or multiple deaths in a turf war between gangs. Those count as mass shootings, even though that's not what we would consider the same thing. 
I was reading through some different debates about why there's like serial killers have dropped off. Some have posited that it's because forensics are better. And so we're able to catch people before like we're, we're catching them after one murder instead of two or three. Someone, some other people have posited that it's because victims are harder to find because people are more alert of the threats and of threats in general. And thanks to technology and things like cell phones, it's easier to call for help and for people to both be more mindful of their surroundings and get help than, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when if you were alone on a dark road, you were alone on a dark road. There's also just the fact that violent crime overall has steadily been declining for decades. The last thing I kind of want to go through and uh, is... There were some theories about why serial killings have fallen off. Uh, some people, like uh, Andrea Subasati mentioned, uh, I believe it was her, but uh, some people have theorized that serial killings have fallen off and just been replaced with mass shootings. There are others that argue that that's not actually the case, though, that the psychology behind the two crimes is very different because serial killings involve more commitment. It's like a perpetuating cycle. And uh, they theorize that when a serial killer kills, they enjoy the act so much and find such a thrill and kind of trying to perfect their crime that they'll just continue to do it, chasing that high and trying to improve, perfect whatever their vision is. Versus like mass shooters, which are usually motivated by vengeance, and it's usually retaliating against society, although grandiosity and, and fame and attention can factor into that as well. But it's usually like an angry person who is lashing out against society in some way for something. An interesting thing I saw that was uh, I wanted to bring it up just because I think it's silly. But there were a few criminologists and psychologists that said that we would possibly see a spike of serial killings. It's that the, the things have fallen off for now, but it's because things basically their their theory is that things have just been too good to produce serial killers lately. And they think that we'll see a spike of serial killers in 2030 because a lot of the serial killers of the 70s and 80s were brought up by parents that were dealing with the fallout of World War Two and the Great Depression. Basically, their parents were traumatized by these horrible events and it affected the way that they raised their kids. And serial killers don't usually become serial killers. Uh, they're sort of formed in childhood, um, even though they don't act on a lot of those urges until they're older. It's a childhood trauma that forms them. And so some of these criminologists have theorized that the 2008 market crash will result in the next spike of serial killers in roughly 2030. But I, and this is me personally, a non-expert and um, dummy, I wonder why specifically the 2008 market crash would result in a spike of serial killers, but we haven't seen that spike as of 2020, which is 19 years after 9-11. And that was a very traumatic mm -hmm. event that resulted in a very long war that is still going on <laughs> right and yet yeah we haven't seen like, I, a big spike in i appreciate what they're going for but yeah in all honesty in my opinion which is worth a lot because i'm a certified expert i would call that a bunch of hooey because First of all, I take issue with the part where they talk about they were brought up by their parents and they're reeling from the fallout of World War II. I don't know if, you know, a lot of people know this, but 
probably one of the best times economically to be born in the United States was right after World War II because we had like all the money and the war basically got us out of the depression. So after the war was done, we were done with like rations. We were done with like so much shit and like things just took off, you know, like people were getting cars. People started moving to the suburbs. That's where like so much of our modern like aesthetic comes from. Yeah. Is the 50s the huge boom after World War Two? No, I call bullshit because there there was probably no better time to be brought up in America as far as the economy is concerned than right after World War Two. They're using World War Two and the Great Depression as examples, but it's not the economy that they're theorizing. It's that the emotional fallout of those, like a whole bunch of people went to war in World War Two, and when they came back, they were fucked up, and therefore right. those people, when they came back, because they were emotionally distant and had to do terrible things and right. become killers came back and raised their kids emotionally distant and potentially fucked up and traumatized them and those kids then grew up to become serial killers because they were raised by parents who themselves were fucked up from World War II and their theory is that kids raised by parents that went through the 2008 market crash will have similar experiences of childhood trauma from these parents who were fucked up from this essentially second great depression And that will lead to childhood traumas that create more serial killers. I also call bullshit because the 2008 market crash was horrible, but it was nothing. It was not the Great Depression. Like there wasn't like a dust bowl. We didn't have people. It was terrible, but it was not. The world is just different than it was then. Yeah. In a lot of ways, like the war on terror was fucking awful. But it also wasn't the same type of war as World War II was. Like, the style of fighting just isn't the same. Yeah. Plus, uh, not to mention, you know, psychology has become a lot more important in helping, you know, veterans and, and just people in general. I feel like psychology is on the rise with people, you know, talking to therapists and stuff and dealing with their issues in a more healthy way. And so... That was certainly not the thing at that time after World War II. What are you kidding me? Yeah, that's why in my head I was like, no way. Like, even the people that came back fucked up were still like, woo, we're America. We won, you know? (laughs) They at least got that satisfaction of being like the last generation of people to be like, I lost my leg, but we won, you know? Like, and it was just a huge extremely positive time it was at least the economy had turned around we had surplus like everything sure a whole bunch of people died but the bad guys lost and now i don't know well like those i think those are personally i don't know i could be really shitty horrible person but personally i feel like those are really great circumstances to turn out some great human beings and then what did we get fucking boomers and like all they've done ever since then is just Tear shit up and be horrible. So maybe it's a generational thing. I mean, and you, maybe we won't see <laughs> a bunch of serial killers because boomers will all take them away. I think that when they go extinct, I think it has something to do. I think you're on the right track with like people being like psychology coming further. I think it has honestly, I think it has something to do with the internet. 
because people are just more well-informed in general. Even yeah. even the most uneducated people generally know more than they did 50 years ago or 60 or 70 years ago. Like, it's just people are more educated. Right. And I think that's resulting in... I th- honestly, I think that's why crime is going down, too, because crime has been on the decline since like the seventies or eighties. And I, th- I think it's because the more educated a populace is, the more they are aware of the sources of the problem and of how to fix them. All right. So music, let's get this train started. No, um, I don't really have a bunch. I did think it was interesting that the, the scores for Shocker and Fallen are basically accomplishing like the same thing. They're done differently. So like Shocker has a score that's composed by William Goldstein. And he does a pretty traditional slasher score to the film. Like it's a lot of it. It's very reminiscent of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we talked about, you know, a long time ago. Uh, with the whole idea of music concrete, which is like a bunch of different sounds kind of smushed together to make a sort of soundscape. And it's similar, except, it, you know, this guy's obviously employing an orchestra. So it's just a lot of I don't know. It's very Wes Craven. Like when I was watching it, I was like, is this Marco Beltrami? Cause I'm pretty sure he did like scream and a bunch of other things. And then I was like, Oh no, it's, it's not, but it sounds so much like him because that's his thing. He's like, I'm going to do a slasher movie. What do I want? Do I want something that people are going to walk out of the theater going, Oh, that was a nice tune. Or am I going to want, well, I want the second one. So, you know, That's where that's where Shocker uh, comes in. The the difference is in something like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which has a really cool ethereal kind of score with some, you know, of the same slasher things as like Halloween and, you know, all these other things that we've mentioned before. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, things like that. The difference is in Shocker it really leans into the whole late 80s, early 90s, like heavy metal, hair metal kind of thing. So like everything on the soundtrack is it's like Iggy Pop with a love transfusion and you've got Megadeth and they do a cover of No More Mr. Nice Guy by Alice Cooper and you've got um, the Dudes of Wrath and they do the title song, which is called Shocker. I know. Surprising. So it's it's really weird because the first time I watched it, I was like, I don't think there was any score in that movie. And it is. It's just not really memorable score. It's like the same cues you get from every other slasher movie where it's like, bruh, bruh, bruh. I don't know. I, I, I have no new words for it anymore. We're on episode 12 and all I can say is basic slasher score. It's funny because I also like, I mean, you heard me earlier in the episode say that. 
I didn't think there was score because I, I don't remember any. All I remember is the hair metal. Like, that's it. Everything else, <laughs> uh, nothing else stuck in my head. I if you asked, If you told me that there was a shocker, like, theme besides the song shocker i would not i would not realize at all like if pinker if there's like a pinker's theme in the score somewhere oh, yeah. uh, there no i i don't i don't think so i i was listening to the soundtrack the other day because i was like i i don't believe there was any soundtrack in the movie <laughs> and i was like so i'm i'm gonna listen to the soundtrack i found it and i do remember it but it's not memorable if that makes sense like I remember it being in the film, but the only reason I remember it being in the film is because it adds gravitas to moments where people are being killed. And that's essentially what oh, a so, lot yeah. of slasher music is for. Um, not everything has to be, you know, a, a giant a symphony accompanying a movie, you know, with every character having its own leitmotif. Sometimes it works really well, and other times that's just not what you need. And, you know, the the case was similar with Fallen, because there is some contemporary music in it, but it's, you know, from the 60s and 70s, the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. So it's less contemporary than what is in Shocker. However, the score was done by Tan Dun, and he did the score for, like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. A lot of, like, really big things wow. that are important. He also did, uh, he composed the music for the medal ceremonies at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. So he's a big deal. Wow. He's also written a lot of operas and stuff. So that's why I was like, did he actually compose the score to this movie or is it one of those instances where he just wrote a piece and they used it as the score in this movie? Because it's got a lot of weird instruments that just make it sound... It, he's. I get what he's going for because uh, Shocker is a very traditional uh, slasher score. And you don't really have a traditional slasher score with Fallen because he's trying to reflect this ancient idea, you know, of this evil that's going to always be around you know that has been around and will always be around that kind of thing you know and so he's using all these really weird instruments to convey this kind of primal aesthetic mm -hmm. And one of the things that people love to hear is the um, water phone. It's like a big stainless steel looking thing. It's got like a donut at the bottom, stainless steel donut. And then out of the middle is like a stainless steel pole. And that's where you pour the water. And then up on the sides, it's got all these little tines, like fork tines or whatever, that you take a violin bow and you bow across those little tines and it makes that weird <laughs> noise that everybody loves. Is that similar to the the thing was it the the fairman where they that they used like the Doctor Who theme that where like when oh, you get close to no. the thing it makes the boo 
So theremin is what was used for uh, the day the Earth stood still. And a theremin is an electronic instrument that has, you know, two wires. One is vertical, one is horizontal. One controls the pitch, one controls the volume. And, uh, you know, you basically have one hand over one and one hand over the other, and you do kind of stuff. Actually, no, I take that back. You have one hand in the middle, I think. And it does both pitch and volume. And you have to, like, raise and lower your hand, change the shape of your hand. It does all kinds of stuff. That is that boo noise that you hear at the beginning of uh, the day the Earth stood still. That's a theremin. Doctor Who, they used uh, these little like electromagnetic tapes that had tones on them, and they just like cut a whole bunch of them apart and taped them back together and played it back through the machine. And when they played it back through the machine, that's what they got was the Doctor Who theme. So they kept it that way. It sounds similar because it is an electronic instrument, but it's produced differently. Huh. Um, and yeah, this is not an electronic instrument. It's literally like all stainless steel. And then you take a, a violin bow that has plenty of rosin on it and you rake it across all those little metal spikes and it creates a spooky sound. Hmm. But yeah, he, he just uses a lot of instrument. That was one that I could think of. Um, there's several other like really uh, interesting string instruments that he employs that contribute to that. And I don't know what all of them are, but... I just thought it was really interesting how it's like kind of the same thing because you get a lot of the same beats, but it's also very different because you've got one that's actually like in Fallen. It actually feels like it's it's adding a commentary, you know, to like this is just like the bad guy in the film is actually a demon, not so much the bad, you know, a bad human. Meanwhile, Shocker is just like, I need something to scare people when the guy jumps out. What do I do? Violins, trill, bass drum. Got it. <laughs> Boom. Um, I also have a little section on the history of possession. I was thinking about like, when did possession in films specifically start because that seems like a really radical idea from, you know, the really early days of film where they were just like, let's tell all of the tamest stories possible, sort of, with the exception of like, you know, Birth of a Nation and shit like that. But anyway, the history of a spirit possession is like probably, I think, as old as people. It's one of those things that you can't really, I don't think you could do a history on it because it's like as old as however the oldest religion is mm -hmm. in the world <laughs> like as long as there have been religions there have been tales of people being possessed by spirits or things or other people like it's it's a whole thing right and pretty much every major religion around the world has some kind of of, of an idea with possession mm -hmm. like I think they did a survey once where it was like 74% of the people sampled in 488 societies, they believed possession was real. Huh. So, yeah, it was very interesting. Anyway, but in media itself, like, it's, it's, it's fascinating how long it takes for stuff to get recorded. Like, even the Roman ritual, which is uh, used heavily in The Exorcist, 
was not actually recorded in, in, in its current version, the one that they used in that movie, until 1614. And since then, I think it's only been adjusted twice. And both times it was really recently. It was like once in the late 90s and once in the mid 2000s huh. when the Roman which Roman ritual was adjusted and since then it was basically unchanged from 1614 on. As far as film is concerned, a lot of the earlier of uh, a lot of the early representations of possessions and exorcisms were in biblical stories. So in 1912 you have the film From the Manger to the Cross which shows, I don't know, a demon that possessed somebody or and Jesus takes the demon out, something like that. And then oh, yeah, it's yeah. the same thing in 1927 in The King of Kings. Very similar situation, you know, and, and, and it just kind of goes in that same pattern. Like the more it's really just in religious sagas that talk about the life of Jesus and stuff like that, that where you really see possession you know mm-hmm. or exorcism as a thing i did find a film it's a 1962 film called the reluctant saint and that film has a dramatic exorcism that's like at the climax of the movie but you find out that that person was not possessed after all so it kind of turns into a whoopsie this person was not possessed so anywho roll credits i don't know huh. seems kind of weird And then in 1968, you've got Rosemary's Baby, which is where, you know, somebody is impregnated with the spawn of Satan, but not really the same thing as possession, but it's getting towards that same trajectory, you know? Right. And I think it's that same time in the 60s where, like, there was a 66 issue of time uh, for their Easter issue, and their whole Easter issue was about is God dead and that was in 1966 so it's really interesting how this um, progression of like you know uh, I don't know I guess neo Christianity neo spiritualism kind of thing you know after the 60s with the with the Vietnam and with the you know with everything that was going on social change so you've got this really interesting like all the baby boomers are like revolting and you've got Vietnam and you've got, you know, uh, campus unrest and this questioning of like, is religion really important in America? And it all kind of eventually culminates in 74 with the exorcist, which is really like basically the pinnacle of, of possession movies, because it was like one of the first movies where the sole subject of the movie was somebody who was possessed. And then how does one go about removing that? from somebody and both the exorcist and the omen movies of that ilk in that era uh they still had like a sliver of like a nihilistic ending to them because even though like at the end of the exorcist even though reagan is no longer possessed she you know the father marin is that his name father marin i think so I can't remember. Anyway, the priest who's doing the exorcism, one of them dies and the other one, you know, jumps out the window with the demon still in his body. And then he dies um, and he gets the last rites on the little sidewalk thing. But, you know, it's kind of like, how do you kill evil? This is the same thing with Azazel in Fallen. Like at the end, he dies and you think, oh, he's almost outsmarted him. And then a cat comes by and you're like, well, if they can go into anything, then how do you really stop them? I guess. And uh, it's kind of the same thing with the omen, too. Like, in the end of that movie, 
hell kind of wins. It's very interesting. Yeah. I also never thought about how there's not really a lot of possession movies until The Exorcist. I I was like, yeah. well, what about Abby? And then I remember that Abby t- is like came out at like just after the The Exorcist came out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's really surprising how how big. I mean, obviously, I knew that The Exorcist was a huge movie for like horror films, but yeah, it was just a huge phenomenon. I even uh, pulled up like body swapping stories because that's kind of a possession trope kind of thing, yeah. you know, where your your body's possessed by somebody else, and it's it's really interesting. That's fairly new for an invention as far as humans are concerned as well, because like the first instance of that happening is in a book called Vice Versa, which is a great title, obviously. <laughs> and that book was published in 1882. So that's fairly, you know, recent for this kind of I'm trapped in a in another person's body kind of thing. In that story, I believe it's a father and son that switch places. But yeah, and then like from there, 1911, 1928, 1931, you know, you've just got books and TV shows and TV episodes and movies and they love to do the body swapping thing, which in my opinion, you know, is a form of possession. Yeah, that, that's what they makes love sense. doing these. Yeah, but they love doing these body swapping things like the the section on like television show episodes is so long and ridiculous. I am surprised it's not its own page because it's just so many well, shows, especially after Freaky Friday came out like that. Yeah. Basically created like that is the spoof that has been done yeah. a, a bajillion times. And you know, when, when Freaky Friday came out 1972. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a children's book and it was written in 1972. Very interesting. And it's actually considered a modern retelling of Vice Versa, which was published in 1882. Holy snap! So, yeah, I know, right? Sort of like how <laughs> Rent is a retelling of La Boheme, which I did not oh, know, yes. and so it was like, what? It's yeah. Once you know, there's no going back to hiding it. Yeah. Okay, I think that about does it. If you want to join the discussion and share your own thoughts with us, hit us up online. We're on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Our email is eerie.earfuls at gmail.com. Our website is eerieearfuls, all one word, dot wordpress dot com. You can subscribe to us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. Most of the places where you can find podcasts. If you like the show, please spread the word. And if you're feeling generous, we'd love if you left us a review. Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also both by Kevin McLeod. Find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. I really wanted to do it. Then I was like, no, our name is very fucking confused. Oh, it's from Urban Legend. Nope. Oh, uh, the fucking, uh, fucking, uh, god damn it. Um, a zombie movie. Nope. Oh, a slasher? Kind of. What just, what is it? 
saw. Oh. It's what uh, Dr. Remember. Gordon says to Adam. Dr. Gordon says, what's your name? And then Adam says, my name is very fucking confused. What's yours? Because uh, they're trapped on opposite sides of the room, you know, chained up. Mm. Adam played by Lee Whannell. Yeah, yeah. It's probably why I don't remember it. Oh. Beep, 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 beep. Burn. You can write memorable films, but not act them. <laughs> I thought it was fine. All right. Maybe.